When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before you, before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jack. You may be seated. So to, just to get us caught up, like I said, we try like to open up books of the Bible and teach you. And we've been in John for a long time now. So just to give you an overview of the year so you know what we're doing. We're in John chapter 17. John ends in chapter 21. We've got four chapters to finish. On Easter, we will finish the book of John. We will be done with the Gospel of John. After Easter, we'll come back and we'll turn a few pages over and we'll open up this little book called Colossians, written by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to study through the book of Colossians from Easter until the end of June. And that'll be our section of Scripture we're camping out in. And then we're going to flip back a bunch of pages and go to the Old Testament. And we're going to spend the rest of the year, starting July 1st, looking at the lives of these three famous men who shape a big part of the Old Testament. And that would be Saul, David, and Solomon, the kings of Israel. We're going to look at the life of Saul, the life of David, the life of Solomon, and that'll round out our year, take us to another Christmas and to year two anniversary. So that's what we are doing. That's We're going to just open up the book of the Bible, flip around, and teach you week by week. So if this is not your church, that's what you can kind of expect. Oh, should I be a part of this church? We're going to go through John, Colossians, and then Old Testament to round out the year. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we have been in John for a long time. The treadmill is moving. We've covered a lot of ground. Our church was started after redemption. It had already been in redemption for a while. They've been chugging through this book. We've been chugging through this book for a while. How do we get our bearings as we open up John? This is your first time here. Maybe first time you've opened up the Bible in a long time. How do you get your bearings? Like what? I just opened up this random page and this guy read it and I'm standing to honor this thing. Why? What am I reading here? I want us to flip over a few pages just to let the author of this book. So flip over, scroll, whatever. Go to John chapter 20 for me if you can. John, I love the pages flipping. That's such an old guy thing to say, but it's so nice. Thin papers. So John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is the author of this gospel, John. And he tells us why he wrote this, which gives us an overview and an understanding of what we're getting into. So the purpose of this book, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Pause right there. So he saw Jesus do far more than this. I've got all this stuff I could pull from. However, but these are written so that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, what is the point? Why write this book? Why another book? Why do we need to know this? Because in believing that Jesus is who he says he is, you will have this thing. The thing that all of us want, are grasping for, hoping to get, and it's life. Full, joyful, abundant life. How do you get it? By believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in his name, you will have life. The only reason John wrote this is so that we might believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we will have 
life. Now flip back over to John chapter 17. So let's get our bearings now in the gospel of John. So Jesus, just to catch us up, is moments away from his death. This is the end of his earthly existence. So the biographies of Jesus are unique because he lived 33-ish years, but the biographies all cover basically like a three-year span. And it's at the end of that three-year span. He is moments away from his death. He has just taught his final message to his disciples, ending in the previous chapter. He says this, Take heart, I have overcome the world. End scene, mic drop, I'm done teaching. And then Jesus looks up and begins praying. This is a beautiful gift God has given us to watch and listen to and learn from and sit in this moment where Jesus, the Son of God, is talking to the Father. It's the most important prayer written in Scripture. This is Jesus' prayer. It's a beautiful gift we've been given. It's more important and more uh, unique than even the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, those of us who grew up Catholic, that's one of the first things we memorized. Jesus did not pray that prayer. He gave that to us to teach us how to pray. Because in that prayer it says, Father, forgive us our sins. Jesus never prayed that. Jesus never said, Father, forgive me. Jesus never had a sin to be forgiven. So the prayer that Jesus prayed that is written down in its totality that we get to study is in John chapter 17. It's a gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it a thunderbolt given to us from heaven. It's this beautiful gift. John Knox, who's a Scottish reformer, famous pastor, preacher, towards his deathbed, this says the last few weeks and months of his life, all he wanted was for someone to come into his room and read John chapter 17 over him. Leave, come back, until he died and saw Jesus face to face. The last words he heard on earth were Jesus' prayer to his father. Martin Luther says this about this prayer. This is a beautiful quote. He says, this, this, this John 17 we're looking at is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He, being Jesus, opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It's so honest, so simple. It's so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. We get to listen in on the prayer of Jesus. Next three weeks, this first five verses is Jesus praying for himself, Next week, we're going to hear Jesus praying for his disciples around him in that moment. The 11, Judas is already gone. And then the week after that, we're going to look at Jesus praying for his church, you and I. I'm praying for Redemption North Mountain. I'm praying for Aubrey Watt. I'm praying for, and he prays for us. And we get to see this prayer out of John chapter 17. As we think about prayer as a specific type of communication, you learn unique things as you listen to someone pray. Different than, like, if you listen to someone fight, you learn stuff about them, you learn about their anger, you learn about what makes them tick, you learn about how good they are at managing stuff. Like my kids, whenever me and Aubrey like start to like disagree on stuff, they kind of tune in, they're like, wow, what's happening here? How wrong is dad gonna be this time? <laughs> but prayer, as we lean in, gives us a whole other angle of relationship that most other forms of communication don't give us. It's a really intimate, sweet thing. Like so much so, I hear a lot of married couples, there's a certain spouse used often that won't pray in public, oftentimes won't even pray in front of their spouse. It's this like vulnerable, intimate thing that we don't really know if we're doing right or not. And Jesus gifts us with his prayer on display to sit in and listen to. He's talking to the Father and we get to learn. 
What do you learn as you listen to someone pray? This kind of is going to shape the message. Here's the first two questions I want to answer for this time together. Is what does Jesus want? Because prayer is this. It's you going to the Father, going to whatever. If you're not even a Christian, when you pray, lift up your voice and ask for stuff. You're asking the highest power, whoever that is, for what you want most. And in this prayer, we get to hear what Jesus wants most. And more than that, prayer reveals this. It reveals where your confidence lies or lack of confidence. As you pray and make petition, make requests, you also expose where is your confidence. And in this prayer, we're going to see where Jesus' confidence rests as he makes some bold requests of his Father. And the final question I'm going to ask is, what did the Father do with Jesus' prayer requests here? Like, how was it finally answered? So that's what we're doing. What does Jesus want? What's his confidence? And what did the Father give him in response? So that's where we're going to walk through. I want to bow and pray and just ask the Spirit to be with us in this moment. So would you pray with me real quick? Be with us in this moment as we unpack your word, specifically your word that reveals the heart of Jesus seen and experienced through his prayer to you. I pray that we would be shaped, we'd be molded, we'd be more in love and more in awe with Jesus because of this time together. God, we confess that we have lots of gaps in our understanding and our knowledge and the way we live things out. This gathering together is a confession that we have not arrived. We have more to go. We have more to become. And we want to be more like you as a church and as individuals. So I pray that this gift and offering to you would also shape us and mold us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first question. What does Jesus want? I'm listening into the prayers of my son. There's, what do they want? What does Jesus want? Let's look together. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Pause right there. That's the only request Jesus makes for himself. As we study this, we're going to look at another verse. He makes one request. Glorify your son. Go down to verse 5 with me. And this is how he ends this section where he's praying for himself. And now, verse 5. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Pause right there. We're listening to a prayer of Jesus talking to his father. He makes his request. He makes one request. He makes it twice. Here's what I want. I want glory. Father, glorify me now in the work I'm about to finish here at the cross and resurrection. And then verse 5. Glorify me like I was glorified before I came to earth. When it was Father, Son, and Spirit, when life was full and complete, we lacked nothing. All the glory we had, we had everything. There was no deficiency. Take me back to that day when we had that glory. Father, glorify me. Glory is a great word. It's also a very churchy word. If you don't grow up in church, if church is not in your natural rhythm, you probably don't even hear the word glory often. But you come to church and it's glory. Glory, what's the answer? Glory, 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 glory. You read a verse, glory, glory, glory. What is glory? If you just look at a basic definition, it's honor, it's esteem. It's somebody getting the honor and esteem do that. If you read through the Bible, glory 
often is seen as one of these two things. Glory is light. As God shows up in moments in the Old Testament and the New Testament, even Jesus is talking about the light has come. Glory is this light, so bright, so wonderful that often we can't even look at it. Glory is this light, wow. It's an intention-grabbing light. Or the other one that I really love is when it's weightiness. Like significance of a person in their weightiness in that moment. It's like if somebody walked in here and been, oh, there's, oh, Kevin's here. Kevin's great. I love Kevin, but most of you don't know Kevin now. A little bit of weight. Uh, Doug Ducey walks in. There's a little bit more of a, LeBron James walks in. President Biden walks Each person carries a different amount of weight. And Jesus is saying, I want weightiness. I want glory. I want every room I walk into to stop and to take notice that I am there. I want the weight and the light of the world. One of the best visuals I have of what I think Jesus is asking for here is from an old Super Bowl commercial that I love. Super cute, very short. It's a bunch of little kids. But I just want to show it to you here. Uh, This... This is what I think glory is. Who loves the world? The whole world. Everyone. Anyone. That's a lot of people. That he gave his one and only son. His only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish. What is glory? It's who gets the wow. When you go to work, who gets the wow? When you go to a sporting event, who gets the wow? When you come to church, who gets the wow? Part of the danger and why God warns teachers and preachers of the Bible is you will be judged with a stricter judgment than others. That's me. Sucks to be me. Part of it is, what are you doing with the glory? Are you taking it on yourself? Are you taking glory and passing it on, pointing people to the one who deserves? Wow. Jesus' prayer. Just let let this sit with us. He asked for this. I want glory. I want weight. I want light. I want all the wows on me. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't know where you're at in your journey, But that truth, that reality is not necessarily something you walk into day one and figure out as a Christian. Most of us are like some version of me. You come to Christ because of crisis or because of issues in your life. And somebody tells you the gospel, that there's a God who's in control. Sin is the problem. God has fixed the sin problem with the person of Jesus. He wants a relationship with you. All you got to do is trust and you trust. And we come to Jesus with very me-centric reasons. And then as you get into the Bible, as you get into discipleship, as you get into healthy churches, you interact with this truth over and over again. But here's what Jesus is about. His glory, primarily. That does not mean he does not care about me and everything I was going through at 18 when I came to meet him. But on the list of priorities, when Jesus prays, he says, I want the wow. Isaiah says it like this. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor will I give my praise to any idols. Jesus wants all the glory, and he's asking the Father for that. That is an offensive truth in our day and age. In any day and age, but in the me-centered world we live in, that is hard to come by. 
What is this world about? It's about Jesus' glory. You've got to come to grips with that. Famous story of Oprah Winfrey. You ask her what her faith is, she would now say, I don't have a faith. Well, why? She grew up in a Methodist tradition. At 27 years old, she heard somebody preach this. God is a jealous God. And something in her mind said, I don't want any part of a God that's a jealous God. That doesn't seem right. In other words, I don't want a God that's all about his glory. Brad Pitt, awesome actor. Ocean's Eleven, one of my favorites. Grew up in a Baptist tradition in Oklahoma. You ask him, what's your faith journey? He would say, uh, it was fine until I heard somebody say this. God's number one priority is that he is the number one person in the universe. And Brad Pitt thought, that sounds egotistical. I'm out. In other words, they interact with this truth that Jesus wants glory, the Father wants glory, God is all about his glory, his weight, his renown, his praise, his light, his name being the most famous name in the world, and people interact with that truth and they go, ah, I, don't, I can't follow that God. But we have to do business. Jesus is praying here, right before his death. He could have asked for anything. Notice he doesn't ask, God, Father, I just, I want my people to know that I love. Like, I think about it as a father. I'm going to die in a week. That would be my prayer. I want my sons to know that I love them so much. Jesus doesn't pray that for us. He doesn't say, you know what? I just want, I pray this for my, I want my kids to have a full, substantial life. Jesus doesn't pray about the quality of our life. Jesus doesn't pray about the quality of his life in terms of circumstances. Jesus prays, I want glory. I want all the wows. I want it all. Jesus, what do you want most? Verse one, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Jesus, what do you really want? Verse five, I'll repeat it then. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is all Jesus wants. Now this takes us to our next question. Why? That's a big request. Like think about who else could make such a request? Here's my desire that the whole world would look at me and say, wow. Nobody in this room prays that. I don't want my whole house to look at me. I want like space because I know my warts and my flaws. Like I want comfort and ease. Jesus says, no, I want all the gaze on me. How can he be so confident to ask such a big request? Takes us to our second question. What gives Jesus the confidence that he actually is the one to deserve this? Like, what a bold, I want all the wows. And Jesus has all the confidence in the world that he is the one to request this and deserve this. Now, we're going to walk through the next three verses, but just to give you something to kind of, here's where we're walking through. Here's where Jesus' confidence lies in two specific areas. In each verse, he sort of repeats a part of this. Here's his first set of confidence. He is confident that his father really is the source of all things. Where did Jesus get anything that he had or was in life? He got it from the Father. Where did he get his authority? It says Father gave it to him. Where did his resurrection come from? It says his Father raised him up. Nothing Jesus did was his own. He got it from the Father. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, one of the things he pushes on for us is here's what your issue is. Your issue is with what you think of the Father. You don't think he's generous enough. Think about your earthly father, who's a sinner, Jesus would say. He gives you good stuff. How much more will your Father in heaven give you? So Jesus has this utter confidence that his Father gives, gives, gives. 
But here's the thing that's unique to Jesus that is not true of us. He's also confident in this. He is confident in the work that he has done with what God has given him. Translation, he is confident that he deserves what he's asking for. Most of us like, if we're honest, we don't have that sort of confidence. One of my favorite proverbs in the Bible is a proverb I wish was true of me. I'd love to get it tatted all over my body, but it's just not true of me. It says this, the righteous are as bold as lions. Meaning, when you're living righteously, when you are right before God and others, and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, there's a righteousness that comes across like the boldness that a lion has. And as we read the prayer of Jesus, we are going to listen to him roar in prayer because he knows he deserves this. Give me your glory. Let me remind us, remind you, Father, remind my disciples, remind people why I deserve this. Here's the first one. Go to verse 2. Where does he get his confidence from? Verse 2 says this. Since, again, he's talking to his father. Since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Jesus is confident in what he has done with the people his father has given him. Notice what the gift is to the son from the father. To all whom you have given him. Jesus says, the gift that has been given to me by the father are people. Not universally people, but the people that the father has given me. The biblical word would be the elect. I've given you the elect. Jesus in another section says this, father, all that you've given me by no means will I cast out. Which is interesting because we often think of Jesus' love as this gift to us. What's the greatest gift to you? Well, God loves me. Jesus loves me. And as we read the life of Jesus and read this prayer, what's one of the greatest gifts, if not the greatest gift, Jesus has been given? The Father has given him us. It says he's given him authority over all flesh. So Jesus is the king of all flesh. In this room, whether you trust Jesus, care about Jesus, spend a second thinking about Jesus is irrelevant to the fact that Jesus is your king. But more than just being a king, he's also the treasured owner of the elect, those that God has given him. Now he's given them a gift. Now what has he done with them? He says, I have given them eternal life. Why can Jesus be so confident to demand, ask for, request glory? Here was your job. Take these people and what have you done with them? You have given them eternal life. Life. Wow. What an amazing truth. And some of us need to remind, like, I get pretty cranky pretty quick and <laughs> I'm getting over sickness. It's not anything famous, I don't think. It's just allergies. But I can quickly look at the world and just, I'm like, man, I'm turning into my dad quickly. Like, I am great with a lot. But if I stop and think, I've been given eternal life not because of anything I've earned or deserved, but because the Father has given me to the Son, and the Son in return has given me eternal life, never-ending life. I was reading this book on just overview of philosophy. Every philosopher, philosophical tradition, every like big thinker who gets to write a big book and become famous because they're a philosopher is wrestling with this question. What about death? And the Christian uniquely can say, ah, what about death? I've been given eternal life. I have life now that will never end. 
So that guy that gave me that should get all the glory that he wants. That is amazing. That's his first thing he says. Here's the second thing, verse 3. This is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. If you don't have a life verse yet, this is a good one for the taking. Verse 3 says this. And this, will describe eternal life to us, Jesus. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, each time Jesus is talking about what the Father has given him and what he's done with that. So what's, what's God given him? He's given him a mission. Jesus is confident in what he has done with the mission that the Father has given him. The Father sent Jesus. It was the Father's mission. And Jesus is saying, I did what I was supposed to do, eternal life. They know me and now they know you, which is why you sent me. Like, did you, what is Jesus' mission? The most important human in all of history, regardless of where you land as far as faith in him. The most talked about, the most famous, the most written about human in all of history. What was his life mission? What was it? Colossians says this, Jesus is restoring all things back to himself. He is the restorer. He is the rebuilder. He is the redemption of all things. Too often when we talk about Jesus in religious settings, he gets limited to, well, he is the one, the savior who fixed my sin problem. That is true. But that is only part of what he is restoring all things. The whole universe is broken. As you read Genesis 3, I was just reading this with the men at the men's breakfast. Genesis 3, what happens? Serpent says, did God really say that? You know, did he really say that? And they eat the fruit. And what happens when we eat the fruit? Everything gets fractured. It's like all these San Andreas fault lines get placed all over creation. First of all, we get broken with God. We are now disconnected from God. They run from God. They take fig leaves, which is a nice picture for what religion is. It's us using our hands, our words to take something to cover ourselves and our shame from God. And now we're separate from God. More than that, we're broken with each other. Man and woman are now fighting. Whose fault is it? It's hers. No, it's his. And now every relationship in the world is fractured. Every grandparent to grandchild. Every husband to wife, every wife to husband, every husband to ex-wife, every boss with employee, every relationship has fractures in it. Which is interesting, even the Old Testament ends with the very, it's book of Malachi. And the very last thing said in the Old Testament is this, I'm sending someone to fix all things. And this is how he describes the fixing of all things. I'm going to return fathers' hearts to their sons and sons' hearts to their fathers. I'm going to restore all this brokenness that you see everywhere in every relationship out there. I'm going to fix this. Why? Because Jesus was sent to fix it. More than that, though, Jesus is in the Genesis 3. What else is? Man in himself is broken. Meaning I don't have a healthy, right, whole relationship with myself anymore. And it's same true for everyone in this room. That's why there's guilt. That's why there's fear. That's why there's shame. I was listening to a podcast. The thing I understand least as we talk about those three things, which is sort of a counseling term, and it's also in the Bible, is shame. So I'm listening to podcasts like, what is shame? I was, at, I was asking a group that was at my house one day, like, what is shame? Tell me how, you, what is, when you say I'm feeling shame, what are you experiencing? You're like, this guy's weird. Who doesn't feel that? I feel a lot of guilt, like a lot of guilt. This idea of shame, I, 
And one of my friends, Cody, said, oh, you don't feel shame. I'll tell you. It's when you feel this big and super insignificant. It's like everything else puffs up, you shrink, and you feel like the tiniest person in the room. Why does Cody, why do some of you feel like the tiniest person in the rooms you go into? Because sin has broken everything. Even ourselves. We never even see ourselves as we should. Like, all right, uncle, I'm done. That's enough. Genesis 3, curse isn't done. And then God says, and oh, by the way, the very ground you walk on, the very created order that I made to be a blessing to you is going to work against you. And now we have disease, and now we have genetic disorders. We have earthquakes. We have tornadoes. Why? Because sin broke everything. And Jesus says, I came. I was sent on a mission to restore all things. And what is the thing at the core of how he's restoring all things? Verse 3, this is eternal life. What is Jesus doing? He is restoring us back to right relationship with God. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As clear as I can say, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you do not know God and you do not have life. If you know Jesus Christ, you have everything you need for life. This is eternal life. What's eternal life? Full, abundant, joyful life. It's knowing Jesus Christ and his Father. And the way you do it is through seeing Jesus for who he says he is. So when he says, give me all the glory, he's the one that came to earth. The seam that was broken in Genesis 3 that tore apart the fabric of creation that we caused and we've participated in ever since. It is being sewn back together one soul at a time as we meet Jesus Christ, the one whom the Father has sent. John 17, 3, write it down. Redemption was started, shaped, molded primarily by one man, Tom Schrader. He came to the Lord late in life. But Tom Schrader, if you ask him, who shaped your life? Which means this is who we've been influenced by because this is the guy who influenced the guy that influenced his church. He'd say one man. He'd say Larry Wright. Larry Wright was a famous, if you're young, you never heard of him, he was a famous disc jockey back when people listened to the radio all the time. He was Lucky Lawrence of Central Phoenix. He was famous and he was wealthy and he had everything going for him, except he did not know Jesus. And he filled the void of his life with drinking, being a terrible father and all these things, and his life starts to fracture. Until his wife gets saved at this little Bible study of sweet ladies. And then Larry starts to watch her change. He says, there's something different about her. And then God gets a hold of Larry's life and saves him. And his life first, he says, is this. This is eternal life, that they know you, Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about how prominent you get in whatever field you're in. That's important, but it's not the most important. What's most important is this. Do you know the only true God in Jesus Christ when you sin? The only way that happens is because Jesus was faithful to go on the mission God called him to to restore all things. And now he invites you to know him and to participate in the restoration of all things. Right now, right in this moment. Even. Second thing, here's the third thing Jesus is confident. He is confident in what he has done with the work that his father has given him. Where do I see that? Go to verse four. So again, he's only requested one thing, glory. Verse one, glory. Verse five, two, three, four are just his confidence. Where's his confidence come from? Verse four says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Pause right there. 
I did the work. So glorify me. What is the work? The way we summarize it as a church and historically in Christianity is the gospel. It's why we are gospel-centered, outward-focused. We could have been a church that says we're Jesus-centered and outward-focused. I want to be Jesus-centered. I want to feel like Jesus. I want to listen like Jesus. I want people to experience me as they experience Jesus. But you could be very Jesus-centered and not have the gospel. You could be all about the person of Jesus, what he's like, what he talks like, what are his flinches, and not talk about the work that he came to accomplish. And if you miss that, you miss everything. What did Jesus do? He accomplished the gospel, the good news, which essentially has two parts. He took a punishment and he provided what God wanted, which was righteousness. God wanted us to fulfill the law. Even Exodus, is the old, we got Genesis. Then Exodus, God gives the law, not as like, a, I hope they do it, but no, this is how life should be lived. And what comes immediately after Exodus is Leviticus, which is punishment for not following the law. We need to follow the law, and we need to be punished if we don't. And all of us screw up that mightily. And Jesus is the good news that did both. He fulfilled the law and he took on the punishment. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite summary verses of what Jesus did. Paul says this, For our sake, talking about the elect, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin. That does not mean Jesus became a sinner. It means Jesus came under the punishment that was for sinners. He took the punishment. He did it. All those goats and sacrifices that the Old Testament did over and over again, they were pointing to one final punishment, Jesus on the cross. But he doesn't just erase our slate, like, all right, no more bad. He also gives us a clean slate that is full of righteous deeds and actions that are the righteousness of God. Like, here's, a way to, here's how you think about sin. There's two types of sin. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Commission is where we all camp out on. I did something I should not do. So we could just go around the room. Who wants to start a lot? Audrey, go first. What's something you should not have done this week? Go ahead, Audrey. We all know that. I shouldn't spend my money here. I should not look at this. I should not do this. I should not talk to my kid that way. I should not, I should not, I should not, I should not. Omission is where you did not do what you should and could have done. It's like an opportunity left on the table, which we just forget. But God says that's a sin. That's, the goats were for those sins too. Everything that you did not do where you could have fulfilled righteousness, you did not do it. Goats were being killed. And now Jesus has been killed on the cross for commission and omission. That's all the same. Like here's a perfect example in our house. You know, Christmas break is a long time with four kids in the house and it starts to get, you know, kind of, you start bumping up against each other. Like, all right, there's sin stuff going on here. And me being the good dad, I'm like, all right, I'm going to remind my kids that they're sinners. What's, <laughs> how do I do this? And we were, a couple days after Christmas, I'm like, all right, kids, sit down. I've got a word for each of you. And that's basically kind of what I see as your flaws in life right now. It was sweeter than that. But it was like, we all have stuff. We all have sin. We're not doing what we should do. And I'm going to give each of us a word. 
it's going to be a positive, so it's something you can work towards. But here's where I see you missing the, the mark. Even sweet little Ozzy, who's four and just the cutest bundle of joy. Ozzy, here's your word. It's like, Wah. I'm not going to share it because pastor's kids don't need to be put on blast from stage. But then I said, and also I want to hear about mom and about me. You get, if you had to summarize us, if you had to give us a word that says, here's where I, you're missing it. You got anything for us? And it was very sweet and very convicting. What's dad's word? And they're like, ah. And they all kind of said something along the lines of presence. Yeah. I want you to be present. And then they're like, ah. But more than that, I want you to notice us. That sucks. But here's where you can find freedom if you rest on the finished work of Jesus. That's true of every single person in this room, in any social setting, in work, in your family, in your home, with whoever. If you were to be totally honest and say, hey, give me a word that I really need to work on, we would all have stuff. Like very clear, specific sins of commission and sins of omission. Jesus Christ does not have any of that. My kids are never going to look at Jesus and say, hey, can you notice me? Never once. For all of eternity, he sees them. He sees all of them, and he goes towards them, and he notices them. So when Jesus says, I have finished the work that you gave me to do, the cross is a big part of it, but the righteousness that is void in all of us is also a big part of it. He took the punishment and he provided the righteousness. He passed the ultimate test. So when we stand as Christians on a foundation, the foundation we stand on is the gospel. Jesus finished the work, not us. It doesn't take me off the hook and now I say, well, I don't really have to notice because Jesus is the noticer. No. I need to work on that now, but I don't have to work on it crossing my fingers, hoping that one day I get to a point where I'm good enough where God sees me and says, well done. Because I look at this prayer and Jesus says, I finished the work you gave me to do. My life is sufficient. The good news of the gospel is we have that foundation by faith now. Amen? That's where we stand on the finished work of Jesus. This was Jesus' prayer. I want glory. Here's why I think I deserve glory. And last question, how does God actually answer this prayer for Jesus? Very simply, he gives him the glory. He answered his request. God, give me glory. This is my hour. Give me the glory I once had. I want glory. And God answers his request. Which just, let me remind you, Jesus, God in the flesh, is asking for everything he wants and God gives it to him. We're not better than Jesus. What we want in life the greatest event in human history. How did it come to be? It was the plan of God foreknown before the foundation of the earth. Yes, but also Jesus asked for that plan to come to fruition and for him to be glorified. Prayer. The greatest thing in your life is something that's going to happen through prayer. God gave Jesus what he asked for. Philippians says, every knee is bowed. Every tongue is going to confess and say, he is the one worthy of the glory. Wow, Jesus got it answered. That's a, I could sing about that. 
But here's the reality of following Jesus. We live in a death and resurrection world. How did God answer the prayer for Jesus? He took him to a cross. Jesus got the glory. How did he get the glory? He got the glory on a Roman cross, naked and ashamed, with the watching world mocking him. And that is God the Father answering his prayer for glory in that moment. A lot of times we think about the cross, if you've been around faith for long enough, it's like, that's the end of it. I fixed it all, which is partially true. It's like the final checklist God needed to set all things in motion to restore all things. Yes. But the cross and resurrection is also the lens by which we see the world now in our lives. It is the template for faithful Christian living. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means this. Jesus says it this way. Take up your cross and follow me. And the glory that you're looking for, the resurrection moments in your life you're looking for, are going to come after death. Not physical death like where you take your last breath, but like death like relationship strain in your life. Taking care of aging parents. Singleness. Going into year 27 and 28 and 29. Divorce you didn't ask for. Financial strain that you're sick of. Being an extrovert in a world that continually shuts down. Being an introvert in a church that keeps making me meet and greet people. <laughs> like, I just want to end with this. Jesus prayed for glory and he got it. But he got it through death and resurrection. The ultimate death and resurrection we need for the restoration of all things. But also now he says, this is life. Life is not going around the cross, going around death. It's going through death and seeing glory and resurrection on the other side. That's good news. It's better than the alternative that death is the only thing we have to look forward to. He rose him and he glorified him. And the Christian life is no different. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just give us Space to number the ways and to see the ways in our life where we are facing the hour of death. God, we as Christians don't want to skip past the reality of what we're facing. Some of us say, oh, it's just, it's a little thing. It's not that big of a thing. The reality is the Christian life is a bunch of little deaths. It's a bunch of moments where we get to choose. Will we take up our cross or not? So God, I pray that you give us all very clear pictures and truths of the deaths that you have us in right now. God, I pray that the comparison game would not be a part of this, that it, if, even if it seems small to us, they're very real things that we are going through. as we look at the prayer of Jesus, we know that you will ultimately restore all things. And you raised Jesus and you glorified him, but you did it in your timing and you did it in your power and it was completely out of the hands of Jesus. 
how much more is it out of our hands to walk through what you have us walking through? So God, as a church, we just confess that too often we want to skip over pain. We want to avoid it. But God, Jesus prayed that that would be the most glorious moment in all of history. It was the most painful moment in all of history. So God, we just trust you in this moment. We ask to trust you more. And God, help us to see these opportunities of uh, resurrection that you can bring as uh, invitation to prayer and the expectation that the Spirit will move. Take away our self-sufficiency that we all walk in here with a variety of levels of and make us more dependent on you as Jesus was, even in prayer, even to the end. He asked you for all things and you answered him. That's our hope. God, thank you for Jesus for completing the work that we can now stand boldly in your presence, not on our own accord, not on our own righteousness, but on the finished, beautiful work of Jesus Christ. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.